You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Is there any way for clinicians to avoid misdiagnosis and other thinking errors? Joining us to discuss these and other questions is Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and Chief of Experimental Medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. Jerome Grubman. Jerry, uh, welcome to Inspired to Act. Pleasure to be with you, Marty. Before we uh, go on and talk a little bit about the errors phenomenon, which we do want to do, I wanted to take people back about a quarter of a century because you and I have known each other for quite a long time now, and I've admired you in many, many ways. But uh, what some people who have read your recent work may not know is about when you came here 25 or so years ago, back in 83, to start to take care of HIV patients. I think it was probably at the Deaconess at the beginning, and you had come from UCLA, and I read in one of your books that uh, the dean at UCLA said to you, why do you want to go to Boston? There aren't, there's no AIDS in Boston. Could you take us back and let us know what it felt like back then? Very much so. There was a sense that AIDS was a rare disease at that time, an unknown disease, clustered in San Francisco, L.A., and New York. I had trained in Boston and then left and gone out to UCLA. And as a cancer specialist, had been asked to see these rare cases of Kaposi sarcoma occurring among young gay men. But for family and other reasons, my wife and I came back to Boston. And indeed, at that time, very little was known about the disease. There was a real social stigma attached to the disease. A lot of the hospitals were quietly debating whether they wanted these patients in their care, thinking that it might be bad for their reputation or their marketing. And it was also just devastating from an emotional point of view. The average survival from the development of pneumocystis pneumonia was about seven months. And many of these young men at the time, it was thought to be, of course, a strictly gay disease, which we now know is, is fallacious. It's a viral disease that can affect and infect virtually anyone. But these were often people who were very isolated, who were cut off from their families, who had lived a closeted and hidden life, and now were stigmatized with this just awful set of infections and cancers. And it moved me very deeply. And I think part of it also was that, as I had written about in the past, that my mother's extended family were Hungarian Jews who had been deported by the Nazis and almost all of them killed at Auschwitz. And the idea of being stigmatized and seeing being seen as outside of society and not really worth life was something that had haunted me growing up. And there are obviously important differences and so on, but here was a group that was similarly stigmatized and in some of the rhetoric of the day, was seen as being so on the fringe as not really deserving care. It's funny, I've never been, uh, obviously, through another big epidemic. I've only read about the great uh, epidemics of the past. But it seems in a relatively short time, an enormous amount of progress has been made here. I mean, the virus has been identified, treatments have been identified. Uh, is it true that this was accelerated because it was decided that, that we would solve this problem sort of prospectively? Is this different than other major epidemics in the history of humankind, do you think? Well, that's a really interesting question because it sort of gets down to a fundamental debate in medical research, and that is, you know, do you just put money out there and people pursue things they're interested in, uh, not knowing where discoveries will come from, or do you do targeted, focused research and say, this is a disease we're going to go after? 
the answer is probably a combination of the two in that the war on cancer, which was launched by Nixon and was largely driven by powerful people in politics and business, was completely misconceived. The prevailing belief at the time was that cancer was caused by a virus. And so an enormous amount of money was put into looking for a viral cause of cancer and developing treatments which would be targeting a virus. And we know now that the vast majority of cancers do not arise from viruses. But one of the seminal discoveries of that work was the work from David Baltimore and Howard Temin discovering reverse transcriptase. And so that was an unintended consequence of the war in cancer. And without that discovery, first of all, there would be no recombinant DNA technology and so on, but also importantly, the basis of retroviruses and particularly HIV in terms of its biology would not be known. But there were severe skeptics early on who said no one's ever developed a drug against the retrovirus. And there were also sort of activists, AIDS activists, who said, you know, oh, these drugs that target reverse transcriptase, like AZT, the first of them, it's poison and, you know, and all of that. And it turned out, you know, as you say, that it is really one of the modern miracles in terms of medicine. I mean, the death rate in the developed world in the United States and Europe has fallen by 90%. No one knows what the longevity is of someone with HIV, but it's many, many, many decades. It raises a little bit of a question about another question, something you wrote about it that I've had some contact with, and that's just something that you call the Christopher Reeve effect. I think you wrote about this in The New Yorker, where a visible person with resources with a very devastating disease puts a huge focus on it. And the question is whether this leads us in the right direction or not, this kind of approach. I mean, it's obviously a smaller scale thing than the HIV, but spinal cord injury. And what do you think about that, where somebody brings to bear so much attention and resources to a particular problem? Do you think that that can ever solve a major biological problem like spinal cord injury? I think it depends on where the level of science is. So that first, it, you know, targeting resources for a clinical question or a biomedical question, if the resources given to, you know, serious and committed scientists will likely yield important information. As you know and I know, being clinically active, to take a discovery from the laboratory and really make it into a treatment is extremely difficult. Many, many things look great in mice and don't work in people and so on. I think without the resources, you'll go nowhere. But there's no guarantee that throwing money at a problem will necessarily solve it. And I think that what you find is that when you do have breakthrough discoveries, like as you said before, the, the cause of AIDS, where you can identify the virus and all of its genetic components, then putting money in does have a higher chance, not a guarantee, but a higher chance of payoff because you have proteins you can target and high-throughput screening and other technologies that can really lead to drug development. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss, is there any way for clinicians to uh, avoid misdiagnosis and other thinking errors and other topics, Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and Chief of Experimental Medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. Jerry Groupman. Because you've brought this into focus, my own take on it was that the error phenomenon in medicine was highlighted by the Institute of Medicine report, and that that started the ball rolling. 
Could you say something about what you think about the error phenomenon, whether this is good for medicine, whether it's frightening patients? How, how do you put this in perspective? Well, there are two kinds of errors, and I think they're both important for physicians to grapple with and certainly for patients to be aware of. Because I really believe that as caring physicians, we're, we truly are partners with our patients. Uh, we all want to do what's best. Uh, I've almost never met a physician who really didn't want to do what was right for his or her patient. The Institute of Medicine report, which was called To Air as Human, almost entirely focused on what are called system errors or procedural errors. You know, someone mixes up in the blood bank the unit of blood, so you transfuse an incompatible unit. Or, you know, in the OR, they put an X on your left hand when they should be operating on your right hand. These are the kinds of things that are catastrophic and they make headlines in the newspaper, but they're actually quite rare in terms of errors. The majority of medical mistakes are not procedural, but they're thinking errors. They're cognitive mistakes, and they relate to diagnosis. About 10 to 15 percent and it may even be higher, of all patients are misdiagnosed. And there is serious harm in about half of those cases by either delaying the diagnosis or never reaching the diagnosis. And that is where I think as physicians, we have the sort of next challenge. The procedural errors have largely been addressed through systems changes, checking names on identification bracelets and things like that. But what's really important and tough now has to do with thinking errors. What is the process for working through this cognitively? I mean, what we try to do is keep track of the errors, try to look at the heuristic we used. But if you throw the heuristic out altogether, the shortcut, you find yourself very, very slowed down and making a different kind of error. So, I mean, how do you think this ought to be approached? There are three primary errors with regard to shortcuts, and, and we need to use these shortcuts. We couldn't function effectively. We'd be like medical students at the first time on the wards. I mean, it would take four hours to see each patient just to get the history. The first error is called anchoring, and that is that all of us tend to seize on the first bit of data, the first bit of hard data, whether it comes from the history or the physical exam or the laboratory evaluation. But that initial data may not actually be the key clue to solving the diagnostic puzzle. But all of us are wired in our thinking to anchor. Another error, which is very common, is called availability. That means what's most available in our memory is what we apply to the situation at hand. So if we saw a dramatic case a month ago, which has certain similarities to the patient we're seeing that day in clinic, we tend to superimpose that dramatic case on the patient we're seeing now, even though he or she may actually differ because it's most available to us. And the third is called attribution. And that is that all of us have social and cultural prejudices and biases. Someone who comes in in disheveled clothes and not shaven and maybe has a little bad body odor and tells you he has one drink a day, we immediately think he's a boozer, he's an alcoholic, and everything will be skewed towards alcoholism. So we, we will attribute the findings to this stereotype. So those three, and they all start with an A, so it's very convenient for those who like mnemonics of anchoring availability and attribution. 
That's a nice way of thinking about it. another one that I get caught up in myself is the framing heuristic where something is presented in a certain way and then you can't get your mind off of that. It is useful, I think, to try to bring them to mind. I think that's a very good way of thinking about it. It's going to help people to try to keep it in the back of their mind. I might be trapped. In fact, these days in Morning Report, you'll be happy to know, Jerry, when we're discussing a case, people will actually say now, I wonder if we're getting caught in the availability heuristic because we saw one of these last week and we might be thinking we're seeing another one. So I think you've had a huge effect. It's what's called metacognition among the psychologists that you begin to think about your thinking. You can't do it, you know, every time you step one way or another, but you do when you come to what seems like a, a, a tentative conclusion, a working hypothesis, you then ask yourself, is, is there a trap here? I want to thank my guest, Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and Chief of Experimental Medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. Jerome Groupman. Thanks, Jerry, so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act. Pleasure to be with you, Marty. You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels.